Welcome back to the program. In just three days, the Winter Olympics begin in Sochi, Russia. In many respects, the world comes to a nation that arguably may be even more repressive than the Moscow of the 1980s Summer Olympics. While President Putin has released some political prisoners, including two members of the group Pussy Riot, the release itself was a kind of de facto acknowledgement of the corruption and repressiveness of its political and justice system. My guest, Masha Gessen, has been a longtime activist journalist in Russia and recently moved to the U.S. in light of Russia's ongoing crackdown on the LGBT community. Masha Gessen is a Russian-American journalist. She's the author of several previous books, most recently the bestseller The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Vanity Fair, The New York Times, Newsweek, and Slate. And it is my pleasure to welcome her to the program today to talk about her newest work, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. Masha Gessen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. In so many ways, this release of political prisoners in anticipation of the Winter Olympics really smacks of being kind of a de facto acknowledgement that these were political crimes and political prisoners. Talk a little about that first. Uh, You know, I agree with that. I think it is an acknowledgement that these were political crimes and political prisoners. At the same time, it's a sort of get away from me. Um, I will give you uh, what you're demanding just because I absolutely have to write this minute um, kind of gesture on Putin's part. He released the most high-profile political prisoners, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the former oil tycoon, the two members of Pussy Riot, uh, who were imprisoned for lip-syncing and playing air guitar for 40 seconds, and the 30 uh, Greenpeace activists who were kidnapped in international waters in September. At the very same time, lesser-known political prisoners continue to be tried. uh, The prosecutors have asked for unbelievably harsh sentences for eight people who are awaiting sentencing in Moscow right now for political protest. On the same day that Mikhail Khodorkovsky was flying to Berlin, a court not far from Sochi sentenced an environmental activist to two years in prison for protesting. Is it fair to look at Russia today as being in some ways more politically repressive than 1980? I think that might be overstating the case a little bit, although um, the key difference between uh, 1980 and now is the direction in which Russia is going. And then uh, on the face of it, 1980 was a lot worse. 1980 was uh, the borders were closed. There was actual official censorship. The kind of freedoms that Russians enjoy today, some Russians enjoy uh, today, would seem unthinkable to us in, in 1980. I remember 1980 quite well. But um, at the same time, um, things were um, not, in, not in much flux in 1980, but they certainly were a lot freer than they had been 15 years ago uh, before or, um, and a lot freer than several decades before. Um, what's happening in Russia now is worrisome in part because things are so much worse than even a few months ago. Basically, um, Russia has been undergoing a political crackdown for the, for the last two years. Or if I can start a little bit earlier for a second. When Putin came to power 14 years ago, he set about uh, dismantling Russia's electoral system and take, taking over uh, the national media. Uh, he completed the state takeover of national broadcasting within one year of taking office. He completed the dismantling of the electoral system within five years of taking office. 
Then there was a long period of stability. And then once Putin was faced with a protest movement two years ago, he began a crackdown. Uh, and that is a direct attack on the people who violate the boundaries that he established when he established his authoritarian regime. Uh, the people who protest, uh, the people uh, who challenge uh, his power, um, are punished ever more harshly. And um, that's, that's affecting not only people who are in prison, although the, those are the ones who suffer the most, but it's also affecting people who, who for example, work in the media. Russia is about to lose its last remaining te- uh, independent television channel. It's not a broadcast channel. Broadcasting was taken over years ago. But it's a channel that went out in a number of cable and satellite packages. It went out to about 20 million people, which in a, hundred, uh, in a country of 140 million isn't large. But for 20 million people to lose their only source of independent news is a huge loss. And this is going on right now as the Sochi Olympics are getting underway. Talk a little bit about Pussy Riot, because more than being any kind of a punk rock group, really they were representative of artists who were really engaged in political protest. I'm not sure that that point always becomes clear. Talk a little about that, Masha. They're partly responsible for that point not becoming clear, because they created this very strong uh, character of a punk band. Um, but uh, the punk band they created is really a fictional character. Um, they, um, several of them come from the, uh, from a, another, an earlier art protest group. So they do very much have a background as, uh, as protest artists. Uh, they are not actually musicians. They, um, when they, when they passed about for, uh, a new form of art with which to express protest, they, um, uh, they picked punk rock in part because they were falling in the footsteps of uh, girl punk bands such as Bikini Kill. Uh, they were also sort of they felt they had, that uh, their legacy was was the riot girl culture. But more specifically, what Nadia Tolakonyko, one of the Pussy Riot members who were released recently, um, what she said in her closing statement in the Moscow court in August um, 2012 was that they looked for a language of maximum sincerity. They looked for something to break through the web of lies um, and uh, to break through a language that is used to obscure rather than to clarify, which is a hallmark of an authoritarian or totalitarian regime. Um, and so they chose to scream. And they chose, what again, what she said was the, was the language of maximum sincerity. And I think that's part of the reason they chose punk. The this fictional group Pussy Riot staged a number of guerrilla performances in various places in Moscow to protest various expressions of the Putin era, from unbridled consumerism and oil money to Putin's power himself, to finally the symbiosis of church and state, which is what they protested when they were uh, the, the the protest for which they were ultimately arrested and sentenced. Right, and tell us a little bit about that event that took place in February of 2012 in in this Russian Orthodox Church, the Church of the Savior in Moscow. Right, it's not just any Russian Orthodox Church that they chose. They chose a very symbolic cathedral, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. It's huge. Um, Moscowites call it the Wedding Cake Cathedral. Uh, it sort of sticks out uh, like a sore thumb and is visible from just about every place in the center of Moscow. Uh, it's very gaudy. It is a, um, a symbol of, the, of, of, of post-Soviet Russia. Uh, 
Russian officials like to go there and be filmed standing there uh, during church holidays. The patriarch, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, officiates uh, there on church holidays. And with Pussy Riot were protesting in February of 2012, two weeks before Vladimir Putin announced his re-election to his third term as president, was the fact that the patriarch was actively campaigning for, the, uh, for, uh, for Vladimir Putin. The fact that the patriarch had instructed um, a parish priests to tell their parishioners not to participate in anti-Putin protests. So that blatant um, coming together of church and state, that blatant use um, of religion to manipulate people politically, was what they decided to protest. Um, And they they really hit the spot at that time, which is, I think, why they were arrested. And talk a little bit about what they did, why this particular incident is the one that got them in so much trouble and that ultimately got them arrested and thrown into jail. Um, well, what they did was they performed a song that they called the Punk Prayer. Uh, a refrain of that song is, uh, Mother of God, chase Putin out, chase Putin out. And um, they also, uh, they sort of listed the offenses of the Putin regime in the song. It's, it's a very pointed uh, political song. Um, they talked about the, the fact that the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church is a former KGB agent, uh, just like Vladimir Putin. They said LGBT rights are, uh, have been sent to Siberia in a chain gang. Uh, this is a quote, which was actually prescient because um, at that time, most people didn't realize that uh, the anti-gay attack was going to become such a central part of Russian politics. And really what they were addressing was what they perceived as Russia's ominous slide back into the Middle Ages, uh, which I think was an incredible insight. Um, again, most people, including me, didn't see that for several more months, which, which is a long time in Russian time. And, um, and I think because they identified the problem so well and because they chose their targets so well, they focused on the patriarch and the president the two most powerful men in Russia. That's why they ended up in prison. Tell us a little bit about the trial that ensued, which was, to call it a farce, is to perhaps engage an understatement. Uh, In the book, I devote 50 pages to the trial, and it was actually very difficult to keep it at 50 pages because, really, I would have wanted to publish the entire transcript. It was such an amazing example of absurdity and cruelty uh, a parade of witnesses who testified that seeing the young women in the church and then later watching their video clip, although, you know, who knows why they did that if, if they were so uh, taken aback by it, but watching the video clip hurt them so badly that they couldn't work for months afterward. They testified to being traumatized. Uh, and this was very important because basically although it wasn't officially called a blasphemy trial, the, the women were tried for blasphemy. Uh, the court studiously avoided the appearance of a political trial. Nobody was allowed to actually quote the anti-Putin li- lyrics of the song, but they devoted a great amount of time to discussing uh, the way that the young women crossed themselves as part of their prayer. Did they cross like regular Christians, or did they cross themselves too fast? They discussed their devilish jerkings, as one witness said. And, um, and then the defense attorneys were completely out of their depth. 
uh, and um, didn't know what to do. So they, they sort of participated in this farce. They fell into it. So at one point, one of the defense attorneys addressed that, vict- uh, that witness who talked about devilish jer- jerkings and said, uh, did you, um, uh, how does the witness know that the, w- that the jerkings were devilish? How does she know where, how the devil jerks? Has she seen the devil? Uh, <laughs> in, another, in another instance, somebody testified uh, that the women were possessed. And the judge intervened and said, the witness is not a medical professional and cannot state a diagnosis of possession. Um, which, you know, you don't even know where to begin with this, because uh, while, while one agrees with the judge that testifying to the woman being possessed is probably not appropriate, it is certainly not appropriate, not because um, it's a medical diagnosis, <laughs> um, but, but because it's not appropriate to talk about being possessed in court. So that, that went on for nine days, nine absolutely horrifying days, um, nine sweltered days, uh, and against this, the background of this of this absurdity, the women were actually being tortured um, because there's no other way to describe what was going on with them um, while they were being tried. They would have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to be taken to court in an unair conditioned unventilated um, prisoner transport. It would sometimes take several hours to go to court. Um, they may or may not be fed throughout the day. They got very little water because uh, because bathroom breaks were unpredictable and not guaranteed. So they also tried to keep um, their water intake down. Occasionally they fainted uh, because it was, it was a very, very hot week in August. They would be delivered back to their um, uh, jail um, as late as 1 or 2 in the morning. So, so for nine days they got a couple of hours of sleep at night. They were dehydrated, they were malnourished, um, and they were being tortured with this theater of the absurd. And then at the end of it, they, they somehow managed to sound a note of sanity by uh, saying their closing statements. And I actually uh, use their closing statements in their entirety in the book because, uh, because I think they're so striking. Uh, and they, they both sort of, uh, they're very, very different, all three of them. Uh, all three of them talked about different things, uh, but they're all very articulate and very clearly political and very determined. And really, you can see that they're the only people in that entire trial um, who talked about what mattered. How was the trial covered? What is the state of journalism, even among activist journalists like yourself at the time? How was the trial portrayed to the public? Uh, well, most of the public in Russia gets its news from television, and television has been under state control for um, 13 years. That's an awfully long time. That's uh, that's long enough not only to to establish the rule of propaganda, but also just to to bring the standards down so far that uh, uh, I, I actually, on the rare occasions that I've had to turn on Russian television, I've sort of experienced something akin to, to physical pain. Um, and um, the uh, the tenor of coverage was very similar to the tenor of the testimony by the so-called victims. So most Russians, I think, still believe that these were women who went into church and jerked devilishly and desecrated it 
for no apparent reason and for this to to jail. Yeah, most people do not realize it was actual political protest. They were sentenced to two years. Talk a little bit about what the prison conditions were like that they had to live under. Right. So the three members of Pussy Riot who were caught were sentenced to two years each. Uh, one of them, Yukatina Samosevich, was released on a technicality, so she never was shipped off to a penal colony. Uh, she served the six months in pretrial detention and, and was released. Uh, the other two, Nagarda Kalakonikova and Maria Lekina, um, went to uh, penal colonies, and they have since emerged in the five weeks that they have been out of jail. They have really come out as extremely articulate um, and extremely brave prisoners' rights activists. Um, and what they have talked about are, are the torture conditions uh, and the systematic human rights violations that are standard for Russian prisons. They have talked about slave labor, which means uh, that women in Russian penal colonies mostly work in sewing factories. Uh, the workday can be seven, 17, 18 hours uh, out of the day. To this often are added uh, jobs on the colony grounds, uh, which is extremely difficult physical labor. So, Again, women are systematically deprived of sleep. They're systematically deprived of good food because the only way really to get proper nutrition in a Russian prison is to rely on food that your relatives send you. Not everybody has family that sends food, but uh, receiving packages from, uh, from relatives, while it is a right under Russian law, is considered by the prison authorities to be a privilege. So that privilege can be revoked at any time, and is often revoked to keep the women in line. Uh, so there, there's, uh, they've described a sort of a hierarchy of punishment for uh, failing, say, to fulfill your work quota, uh, which grows exponentially uh, and constantly. Uh, and you can be your food privileges can be revoked, your hot water privileges can be revoked, so you can't have tea, your access to dormitory can be limited. So you can only enter your dorm uh, when it's lights out uh, for the few hours when you're allowed to sleep. And the rest of the time you may be kept outside. Uh, and Russia, as, as you probably know, has winter most of the year, uh, at, least, uh, at least the parts of Russia where penal colonies tend to be. Uh, and they've also talked about something that no one usually talks about, which is hygiene. Women are systematically denied the right to wash. They're not allowed to use the washrooms in the dormitories uh, for personal hygiene purposes. They uh, are taken to a common washroom once a week, taken there under guard. 8,200 women have to fight over five sinks, which may mean running water on that particular day. It is extremely humiliating, and it really reduces the inmate to a, a kind of sub-animal state, um, which is the point. The point is to turn people into bodies that are, in the words of Masha Alekhina, Maria Alekhina, uh, one of the Pushuayat members, uh, bodies that are just moved between the residential zone and the factory zone within the prison. Has there been any attention to this from international human rights organizations? International human rights organizations have... Uh, on a number of occasions, turned to Russian prison conditions. 
uh, it's not an undocumented uh, story. The European Court on Human Rights has often addressed Russian human conditions and have found them to be uh, violations of, of basic human rights. The Russian authorities have, by and large, ignored this. Russian public has, by and large, been ignorant of this. So one of the things that, um, that former Pussy Riot members are doing is using their fame and their pulpit uh, in, on the international uh, scene, but also to the extent that they have it uh, in the independent media in Russia, to publicize what they went through. What is the danger of them going back to prison after the Olympics? I think if they keep doing what they're doing, which is uh, actively fighting the Putin regime, they will inevitably end up back in prison at some point. Uh, and, uh, there's no way to, to say what kind of uh, supposed crime uh, they will be jailed for and when this will happen. It's just a, the general state of things is such that um, active opposition uh, sooner or later lands you in prison unless you're willing to pick up and leave when things get bad. And they seem to show no willingness to, to go into exile. You left Russia not too long ago in part because of the pressure and the attacks on the LGBT community. Talk a little bit about that, and as you indicated before, that this has become a big deal, a significant issue in Russia of late. What precipitated that? And talk a little bit about the arc of what's transpired in that regard. Actually, I left Russia solely because of the anti-gay campaign, uh, because I, uh, my partner and I have three children, and the anti-gay campaign is very much uh, served under the sauce of the protection of children. And one of the uh, items on the agenda is uh, taking children away from same-sex families. Uh, I have been publicly out in Russia for 20 years, so uh, we're the only uh, same-sex family that's actually well-known. Uh, we're, we're the only people who are out as a family. So we knew they'd go after us uh, eventually, and um, and they've talked about it, and the, the, the proponents of the anti-gay laws have talked about it. Uh, targeting our family, and uh, the leader of the so-called Orthodox activist movement, uh, which is the movement of thugs who beat LGBT activists up whenever there's a protest, has volunteered to adopt my children and raise them. Um, so, so we had to leave. Now, to the question of what uh, precipitated the anti-gay campaign, I think that it's um, um, it, it's two things. One came first, and one sort of grew out of it. When Putin was faced with a mass protest movement, he really felt like he saw the enemy. He really felt like this had to come from the West. And in his mind, LGBT is a sort of shorthand for the West. Uh, LGBT people are the ultimate foreign agent, which is which is a, a buzzword in Russia right now. Um, LGBT people... Uh, are the best representatives of Western influence in Russia. Uh, Russians think that there were no gay people in Russia until the West imported this idea. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a classic exercise in scapegoating uh, at the beginning. And it was, uh, it was a classic exercise in mobilizing a shrinking constituency against an enemy. Um, and also Putin thought that this was the one minority he could beat up on without the world noticing. He didn't realize uh, how much of a diplomatic cost, cost he was ultimately going to, to incur. 
But what happened soon after uh, Putin's Kremlin stumbled uh, upon this issue of, of, of LGBT is that it turned out to have uh, incredible utility uh, as a true mobilizing tool, as uh, it, it's sort of given Russia its new national identity. It's given Russia its new national ambition. Russia now wants to become the traditional values capital of the world. Putin has said that Russia is the light of conservative values uh, that opposes the darkness of tolerance that is creeping in from the West. Um, and um, this, this is something that's going to be around for a while, because at this point, being anti-gay has become synonymous with being anti-Western, which in turn has become, for a large part of the population, synonymous with being Russian. Is there a danger that the opposition to that, that social protest, as it starts to continue to grow, starts to emerge and continue to grow in the country, that social protest can be even more effective in some respects than political protest, and that it will have more far-reaching negative consequences for Putin? I don't see a whole lot of potential for social protest. I mean, there are basic uh, requirements for social protest, uh, uh, and one of them is communication. And uh, in the absence of impact public space, uh, in the absence of independent media, uh, communication is very difficult. Social networks do not entirely make up for uh, for what's lacking in, in the public sphere because social networks reflect what exists offline. They can't forge connections that have been destroyed by an authoritarian regime that's out to destroy public space. Uh, so that's that's one reason that social uh, protest is, is difficult and unlikely. And another thing is that uh, for people to engage in social protest en masse, they really have to feel like they're possibly gaining more than they're losing. Uh, Putin has vastly raised the stakes of protest over the last two years. Like series of laws on public assembly, uh, on uh, on the functioning non-governmental organizations, and finally, uh, just by prosecuting people for protest, starting with Pussy Riot and continuing to a number of other people uh, who many people, most people have never heard of. Um, and at this point, the cost of protesting, just participating in protest, not even organizing protest, can be jail or backbreaking fines, uh, and uh, you know, that's, that's pretty close to, to having your entire life turned upside down just because you go to a demonstration. And at the same time, people don't feel like they have a whole lot to gain by protesting, because the, the regime has demonstrated it's indifferent to protest, except to crack down. And what is your sense of what, if anything, will transpire as the world's attention is focused on Russia during the Olympics? I'm I'm glad that this has coincided with Putin's big party, um, which the Olympics is, uh, because it has drawn a lot of attention to Russia. It has educated uh, vast numbers of people about the crackdown and about the anti-gay campaign, uh, and about a larger campaign against civil society. At the same time, I'm very concerned about what happens after the Olympics, because I think Russia will disappear from uh, the front pages. Uh, or from the media entirely, if uh, past Olympics are any indication uh, after the games are over. But that's exactly when things are going to get really bad in Russia. 
that's exactly when Putin is going to um, get his payback for having had to make concessions before the game started. Uh, that's exactly when he's going to lash out um, and show uh, his opponents internally and externally that he means business. I expect a lot of um, uh, very hard sentences to come down. I expect a lot more arrests after the, the games are over. I expect uh, more uh, repressive legislation passed very, very quickly after the games are over. Um, I expect Russia to become an even more scary place very, very fast with the spring, basically. Masha Gessen, the book is Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. It's just out from Riverhead Books. Masha, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.